miracles of Jesus calming the wind and the waves for his disciples in chapter 4 comes the story of Jesus delivering a man who was possessed by an entire legion of demons. The wind and the waves obey Jesus, and so do all the forces of Satan. Jesus Christ is plundering the strong man's house in the Gospel of Mark. In the first half of Mark's Gospel, the authority of Jesus as God's agent who inaugurates the kingdom of God is front and center. He has shown his authority over nature. Now he shows his authority once more over the demonic realm, but this time in a confrontation unlike anything we've seen thus far in Mark's Gospel. Matthew and Luke and their Gospels both record this incident, but Mark gives us the most detail in particular about the demon-possessed man himself. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. In Mark 5, in our text this morning, Jesus restores this demon-possessed man. Next week, God willing, he heals a woman who had suffered with a hemorrhage for 12 years and raises a man's daughter from the dead. He has come to rescue the perishing. Jesus himself is the very act of God for our salvation. That's what Mark is passionate to show us in his gospel. He is Lord over the chaos of nature. He is Lord over the chaos of hell. And he is Lord over the chaos of in our world, and in you and me. He is Lord over everything. Jesus Christ has the authority to destroy everything that threatens the salvation of those he means to rescue. Let me read this text in its entirety, 5, 1 through 20, this story. Mark writes, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always carrying, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For, he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The reason... Mark places this 
immediately following the stilling of the wind and the waves is to keep revealing the character of Jesus to us. We're meant to walk away from this text better informed of the majesty of Jesus Christ as a Savior. The wind and the waves threatened to destroy his disciples. Jesus calmed them. The demons mean to destroy this man. Jesus rescued him. Jesus overcomes chaos. Remember, it was Jesus who brought light into the void and the darkness in the beginning. The word who was with God and who was God. He possesses the power to calm chaos wherever and whenever he encounters it. We might wonder when you read a story like this what its relevance is. For us, it's, it's just a story. It's, it's unlikely that any of us are currently possessed by a legion of demons or have ever been in our lives possessed by a legion. But, beloved, we need to know this. We need Jesus doing what he's doing here in Mark 5. We need him to manifest his authority over chaos because that's all life under the sun in this world is. We know from chapter 4 that the night before, Jesus and his disciples had gotten into a boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But there had been a great windstorm that interrupted them. Jesus commanded the wind and the waves to be still. They did so. Early the next morning, they arrive on the shore of the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes or even the Gergesenes. There are uh, textual variations that make the exact location of this town uh, a little difficult to pinpoint. We know there was a town called Gadara uh, on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Another town called Gerasa, even further southeast. But the actual site might have been a village called Cursa that was right on the eastern shore of the sea. Uh, either way, it's the region of the Decapolis, which was a largely Gentile area. There were several Roman garrisons there. And so it's probably closer to Cursa, the little village, because Jesus, we find in the text, actually doesn't make it all the way inland to Gadara or Gerasa before this happens. The text says immediately when he got out of the boat, He's met by a man out of the tombs who has an unclean spirit. Three times in this chapter, Jesus will encounter that which is unclean. Here with this man and the pigs, blood and a dead body. And he will not turn away from any of them. Notice that. Jesus is not made impure by touching what is unclean. That doesn't taint him. He is stronger than what is unclean. Instead, when Jesus touches what is defiled, what is defiled is purified, beloved. If Jesus cannot get close enough to sinners to touch them, what are we going to do? But Jesus makes soil good. We see that theme carrying over from chapter 4. Where the seed goes in, the soil is purified. It doesn't matter where you take Jesus. He cannot be conquered. Now, to a Jewish person, the worst thing that could happen was to be declared unclean in the sight of God. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're all filled with laws and procedures for cases of uncleanness. But later on, in the rabbinical tradition, the synagogue, the Pharisees, they added to those laws for the sake of the community. So the Old Covenant said if you touched a dead body, you were considered unclean for seven days. Numbers 19, 11, and 12. But the rabbis had expanded on that to say that if you touched any of the accoutrements of death at all, any of the devices, if you touched a buyer, if you touched a gravestone, you were also unclean and needed seven more days of purification to be cleansed. The Israelites were deeply concerned with cleanness before God. So by New Testament times, you can imagine being possessed by an evil spirit 
would have been one of the worst kinds of uncleanness possible. And this man is unclean in at least four ways. He had an unclean spirit. He has a legion in him. He lived among the tombs, among dead bodies. He lived in the Decapolis, which is a largely Gentile area. And he obviously lives near people that herd pigs, which to the Jewish people were unclean animals. In other words, to a Jewish person, this man's uncleanness is quadrupled. He's as unclean as you can be. He's as beyond hope or rescue or purification as a person could possibly become. Mark says in verse 3 that he lived among the tombs, so this man has been exiled from human contact. He lived in a graveyard. This was a terrifying individual to be around. No one could bind him anymore, the text says, not even with a chain. People had tried. There's been attempts to subdue this man and control him. He would just break the chains. Nobody was strong enough to subdue him. And in this village where you're, you're farming and herding, these aren't weak men. These are strong men. Nobody could subdue him. Nobody could control him. He was superhuman, possessed by a legion of demons. He was literally like a beast. He was rabid. He spent all day and all night in verse 5 cutting himself. So he's covered in blood, screaming, crying, all the while possessed by demons. Misery upon misery upon misery for this man. Who wants to get close to that? Who's going to visit him? The Son of God. Pick it up in verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. You can always tell by the way the demons respond to Jesus that he is the king God has sent to inaugurate the kingdom. Listen to the ones who feel their empire is under assault. Right? That's what you're seeing in the terror of the demons here. And I've, I've probably... I know I've mentioned this before, but if, if you watch movies and TV, you'll probably get the wrong idea about who you should really be afraid of when it comes to the spiritual realm. Movies uh, make it seem like the devil is the scariest thing there is, the scariest thing in the universe. They make him, his, his appearance scary. Uh, his power is unmatchable for some reason. When he possesses people, they speak Latin. I don't know what that is, right? I don't know, like, you know. Me no me es no importante. Like, did, did, did Satan just speak Latin? Did you go to Lindsley? Why are you speaking Latin, right? So it doesn't make any sense, but they make him very scary, very terrifying. But there's something that makes Satan and his demons shriek in terror, beloved. He's the one to be afraid of. He's the one with real power. He's the one with power to cast both body and soul into hell. He's the one with actual and absolute authority, as we've seen in Mark, think about that for a minute. The world, lost and in sin and in darkness, would rather have a scary, terrifying tyrant that destroys people and destroys their lives and destroys communities ruling over them than they would have a king who forgives sins for free. That's why the world is in chaos. The demons in this man are terrified. So they start begging. That's verse 7. Again, crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? What did that sound like? I'm sure, that was terrifying. I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. The demons are imploring Jesus not to torment them. The phrase is, before the time. I think that, that might be one of the most important things in understanding this text. They're asking him, what are you doing here now? Why are you here now? Because we find in verse 8, in a... 
uh, kind of flashback that Jesus has already been saying to the unclean spirit, come out of the man. The demons, when they talk about before the time, they don't mean they had an appointment, right, at some, you know, later on that day with Jesus and it's too early. They're talking about time as kairos, not chronos, not the normal passage of time, but a specific moment in time. The demons of hell know that in God's plan of redemption, he has appointed a day when Satan will be bound and all the forces of hell will be crushed once and for all. Satan and his minions know, they've always known, that their days are numbered and they all live in mortal fear of that moment. But on this day, they knew it wasn't that day just yet. And so they're asking, they're simply saying, when they invoke God, you think, why would the demons invoke the name of God? God is going to be on Jesus' side. What they're saying is, is, is saying, God said that you wouldn't do this before the time, that he's fixed the time. What are you doing here? By God, we adjure you by what he said. See, they're very conservative. They believe the Bible, right? We adjure you by what he said. Don't torment us before the time. Jesus knows everything must be done in his father's time. He submits to his father's time. He could have sent them into the pit forever. Absolutely. It wasn't the time for that yet. But it was time for this man's redemption. When Jesus asks for the demon's name, it's not a kooky trick to gain power over them. His dominance over them is already clear. Right? He doesn't need to, to pull some kind of trick to get dominance over them. They're terrified of him. He's in charge. There's no question. He wants his disciples and whoever else is there to know how massive the man's possession is so that he can emphasize the greatness of the miracle he's about to perform. He wants it clear what he's about to cast out. A legion was a Roman military unit made up of approximately 6,000 soldiers. It's also, of course, a word that would have been used for any large group. He's probably, although I can't say for sure, possessed by 6,000 demons. I think the text implies it's more like 2,000. So, I mean... What difference would it make? Do you know how awful, how terrifying that would be? We can't even imagine such a thing. But Jesus doesn't miss the military connotation of the name Legion in the midst of Rome, in the midst of Israel. The context isn't lost on Jesus. And after all, he is binding the strong man. So here he battles his soldiers too. But Jesus is willing to bargain, so to speak, since it's not the time the demons were talking about. So they beg him, please send us into the pigs. You see that there in verse, um, when, the, when they beg not to leave in verse 10, they begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Uh, it seems as though evil spirits were or are territorial beings that have control over certain locales or did before Jesus rose from the dead and sent his spirit. But if they could at least inhabit the pigs, they're apparently thinking, then we won't have to leave this region entirely. 2,000 pigs is a huge herd of pigs worth a fortune at this time. A fortune. First of all, then, just how powerful is Jesus? It's possibly at least 2,000 to 1. Who's afraid? The 2,000. Those aren't good odds. They're terrified. They're in the pigs cascading over a cliff into the sea. In the ancient world, the sea was a place of 
chaos. It was very closely connected with the netherworld. Jesus is doing that on purpose. That's where he sends them. The demon's desire then to remain in the region has failed. They're gone. Jesus has kicked them out. We pick it up in 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. So the herdsmen run back to the town where they live and tell this story, which brings everybody running, of course, to see what has happened. In verse 15, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Afraid. Just like the disciples back in 441, when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, their reaction to the majesty and power of Jesus is fear. It's fear. This man had been anything but human. Rabid, wild, Naked, out of control, scary, superhuman strength, screaming, cutting himself, living in a graveyard. And now the man who had the legion, Mark says, the demon-possessed man, is just sitting there with Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. The power of God's mercy and love captures and transforms people who don't even know it exists. People that initially reject it with everything they have. How does one respond to power like that? This is what Jesus is doing in the world. It's what he's come to do. How do people respond? Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. There are two responses to Jesus here. Notice this, in light of chapter 4, there are two kinds of soil, right? Two kinds of soil responding to Jesus in Mark 5. The first response is fear. Rejection, right? Maybe because if someone has that kind of power, if they can do that, imagine the disruption they would create in a community. Uh, the inbreaking of the kingdom is not going to let things return to normal anywhere it goes. Right? In fact, if, if things return to normal, something is probably wrong. But it remains unexplainable. It means unexplainable power. It means radical transformation. Either way, it's too much for the people to handle. We pick it up in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The second response to Jesus, of course, comes from the man whom he had set free. He had delivered. He also begs. There's a lot of begging in this first part of Mark 5. But this man, instead of begging him to leave, begs him that he might be able to stay with him. Jesus denies his request, but he doesn't deny it negatively. He tells him to go and announce to others in that region, to his friends, what the Lord had done for him. He obeys. He goes and begins to proclaim, rather than just tell, like they did in verse 14, by the way, he goes to proclaim what the Lord had done for him, or what Jesus had done for him. So the work of God is the work of Jesus. We find in this text, he is the Lord. And apparently, simply being able to tell what Jesus Christ had done for you qualifies a person to some degree for mission work. In Israel, Jesus wanted these things kept secret for the time being. We've seen that throughout Mark. 
But Mark is showing us this was not the case among the Gentiles. Israel had its own ideas of what the Messiah would be like. Jesus wants to define that on his own terms, of course. He doesn't have the same concern, apparently, in Gentile spaces. And so the result is the first person to spread the news in Gentile territory. The Decapolis, where he is, means the ten cities. It's a region to the east, the southeast, really, of uh, Galilee. It's made up of a confederation of cities that had, you know, defense and trade ties together. It refers more to the whole region than the actual cities themselves. But the point Mark is making is that the, the inhabitants of this place were primarily Gentiles. By the time Mark was writing his gospel, of course, the Jesus' mission to the Gentiles was in full force. But he's showing you where it began. And it began right here. Jesus will return to this region later in Mark 7.31-8.10. He'll heal a deaf man. He'll feed a crowd of 4,000. This is a foretaste of the mission to the whole world in Mark 5. He is proclaiming that he has come to rescue the nations. This man knows that the best thing for him would to be with Jesus. No question. When would that ever not be the case? But this was the time for proclamation. Just as it is right now, beloved. This is our Kairos moment so to speak. This is our time today for our proclamation. There is work to be done. There are people to rescue. Jesus is manifesting his authority over chaos. His disciples were assaulted by a storm. A Gentile man is assaulted by the forces of hell. Jesus stilled both. Mark is showing us wind, waves, nature, Demons, all those things humans cannot control. All of them tremble before him and before the power of his salvation for sinners. The only response, apparently, that makes sense when the holy encounters the unholy is dread, terror, fear. Why? Beloved, human beings, every single last one of us, have offended God have sinned against Him, we've rebelled against Him, and we are unclean. The result is chaos in everywhere and in everything. In our personal lives, in our relationships, in our jobs, we are also selfish and consumed with ourselves, consumed by our desires. The world is chaos. It creates rifts between friends, between families, between nations. It results in famine. It results in suffering. It results in violence and murder and hatred. And meanness and unkindness. And Jesus Christ has come to make things right, beloved. And that includes our redemption. Think back with me now. This is very interesting. I I think. Think back with me for a minute to verse 13 and what happened there. This, again, this is a fortune. 2,000 pigs. And neither Mark or Jesus, appear to be concerned whatsoever with the welfare of the pigs or the financial loss of the herdsmen. It's not even addressed in the text. And there's no apology for it. Beloved, hear me. These are casualties of war. This is dust in the wake of the plowman. That's what this is. People are more important than pigs. People are more important than pigs. 
This life and all its possessions and all its gain, all its financial benefit, they're all passing away. We need the Lord of chaos to come and wreak havoc if there is going to be peace. We need Jesus to invade and interrupt everything. And this is a picture of that. Satan is bent on destruction. God is out to save. These two forces are clashing in and through the church's mission. And the gates of hell know they are not going to prevail. That makes them more dangerous, more sinister, more strategic, more violent. God desires all kinds of people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he will claim what his son has purchased. Period. This incident reveals the power of the gospel Jesus preaches to overcome all of that. Even the most hateful and powerful hostility. Even the worst kind. The deepest kind of chaos. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... You realize that's what you were before you got saved? You were dead. You were not going to do anything to save yourself. Dead people don't do a lot. And you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Past, present, future. All of them. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In so doing, the text says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. By triumphing over them in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has the authority through the cross to destroy everything that threatens the salvation of the people he means to rescue. The time has come for us to actually bow down before the Son of God, before Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, the Lord of Chaos, I would call him here. Not just over chaos, not just Lord over chaos, but Lord of chaos. It's His. Chaos belongs to Jesus. Beloved, that means Jesus is not safe. He's not safe. It's not safe to follow Him. It's not safe to believe in Him. It isn't safe. Everywhere He goes... He's undoing the earth, undoing everything. Jesus upsets the whole system, and he brings chaos because he brings salvation by grace through faith, apart from works. Could you imagine what would happen here if God began to bring people to us, to our spheres of influence, or maybe even into our church, that were anything like this man? What would that look like on a Sunday morning? Chaos. It would look like chaos. It would be chaos. How would we respond to God bringing people here that cause chaos? Because they need Christ. How would we respond to that? What are the needs of this place? What has people in bondage in Moundsville? In Glendale, 
you, you've read the book of Acts. You've got to know that you've been sent as a missionary to this community. That's what we are. You were born here for a purpose. God has you here in this place and not another place for a purpose. And it's all wrapped up in the mission Jesus came to do. So what are the needs here? What are the idols of Moundsville? Right? If we were to walk around like Paul did, what would we find? What would we find that people worship here? How would we attack it? How would we go after it? Or do we just sit here and enjoy this? All right, those are the options. They always have been. It's never been anything else. What has to be put down here? Right? And I, I, look, I'm not talking about boycotts and political... I'm not talking about those worldly things. I'm talking about how can the people here hear the gospel from God's people that are also here? How? Right? Paul teaches in Colossians, we, we need to know how to answer each person. Never with a different gospel. With the same gospel, reach different people in different places with different needs different beliefs they already have about God and about how many people in our community align their nationalism and patriotism with salvation. They think that because they're on the right side politically, they're on the right side with God. That's an idol here. How many people think that they're safe because they're on the right side of the political aisle? Do we even realize the chaos it would cause if God broke out with salvation for captives in our little church? What, what, what can our little church handle? Whatever God brings us, beloved. Whatever God would bring us. All the fallout here in our nice little church that we love very much, and rightfully so. But all the fallout it would bring if, if God made it so we had to actually manage spiritual triage for broken and sinful people. People that would embarrass us if they walked in here. Right. But... The goal of the church is not to keep the doors open and the lights on. Right? I think that's what we worry about people hurting our little plot, right? That's what we worry about people interrupting. But the goal of the church is to be loved by God and redeemed by Him and to see people saved and conformed to the image of Christ. Right? I'm not trying to... Uh, leave a building for my kids so that they have somewhere to go when I'm gone. Right. That's not my goal. The church is not a place set up on the earth to accommodate the preferences and opinions of its members. It's set up, it's sent to storm the gates of hell with the gospel of salvation for the sake of sinners. That's what it's for. It brings chaos. And it stills chaos. We are not above our master. It's going to be the same for us. This world, this world is a wasteland. This world is a wasteland. I don't want my kids, I don't want my church to have a home here. I don't want that. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. A lasting building has never been the goal of the church. Ever. God doesn't need a legacy. God has a testimony. You can't snuff that out until you kill the last believer on the earth. Good luck with that. Because everywhere the foot of the beast stamps down, more of us grow. 
since COVID, since it began. The goal has been to get back to normal, right? We've got to get back to business as usual. Let me ask you a question. All right. Think, just think about this for a minute. Because anytime something like this happens, what you hear is that this is judgment on America for her immorality. What if, and I don't know this, okay, what if God brought about the present chaos in our country, not as judgment on America, but as a wake-up call to his church because the lamps are going out? What if that was what was happening? We always deflect. Always. Disaster happens. Things happen that shake up the status quo. Chaos comes. What did somebody do? Right? Maybe God is getting our attention. Right? He took away everything we like. He took away everything we think of is church. He took it all away. And now he's been merciful and the virus is waning and it's lessening its damage and its impact. And what is everybody saying? All right, finally, back to normal. Why? Why? Why is the goal to make sure we can keep doing what we always did? Why is that the goal of God's people? What if we've been compromised by our love for this world, our hope for security, our hope for a lasting city here? What if that has compromised us, damaged our ability to see with the eyes of Jesus, damaged our ability to see the world for what it is? What if God doesn't want us to get back to normal? What if business as usual was the problem? What if God took things away so that we stopped doing them? We have to get back to normal. We have to do things the way we did before. Why? I think because it makes us feel comfortable. It lets us relax. It makes us feel that everything's normal and everything's okay. It's not. Nothing is normal. Nothing is okay. The world is wicked. It's going to hell. People are dying. People are perishing all around you. Nothing is normal. Nothing is good. Nothing is safe. Ever. They're dying. Dying. In mass all the time. And we are just, oh man, let's get back to normal and, and, and keep doing our thing. And where did Jesus ever go that everything just stayed nice and just quaint? People are perishing. We live in a constant state of nostalgia. What if COVID was our letter from John, so to speak? Again, I don't know that. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm not enlightened by the Spirit like that. I, I simply, maybe we need to look at it from a different perspective for a while and consider some other things. I know it's easier not to get involved. I get it. I know it's easier to, to pack away. It's less stressful. It's easier. Your life will go much easier if you try to just keep our little corner of the world safe. Like I get it. I, I love our church. I love it. It's so easy to be here, to be among you, to be your pastor. 
You all are such a blessing to my family and I. I'm not scolding you this morning. I'm simply asking you as my kin, right? As the DNA of Christ flows in our veins, what are we doing? Right? They're dying. Maybe there's more important things than business as usual. Right across the street from us, they're dying. Literally. Do we even know the people in these homes? The hour is late. The day is spent. And many are not saved, beloved. I don't want to maintain the status quo. It would be much easier to do that for all of us. I just, I don't think it's in the cards anymore. The world is too corrupt. There's too much sin. There's too much rebellion. And I say that not to say like we combat that, but that's evidence that people are dying is what I'm saying. Right? I don't want to, I don't want to just spend the rest of my life being angry with lost people. That's not what I mean. I want to learn to look at them like Jesus did, a sheep without a shepherd. How do we do that? How do we cultivate that? Because he, he, he went towards them. He didn't pull away from them. There are so many people, even in our church, that are struggling so much, so much, just with life. Some people, everywhere they go, people are mean to them. That gets hard. Somewhere, for some people, everywhere they go, people think they're a loser and a clown and their life's a failure and an embarrassment and they live under that burden all the time. There are people consumed with their sin, consumed with their desires, openly rebelling against God, hate Him, hate His people. It affects everything in our world, everything. Moms and dads that are barely holding on working their tails off to provide for their families. Marriages are strained. Relationships are broken. Sin increases. Sorrow increases. Pain increases all the time. It's exponential. And we just want to get back to normal. Like that will heal us. That's what we think our Savior is. If we can just get back to the way, then we thought way too highly of the way things were before. It's not a Savior. It, 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 do you, under, you understand that language that we're using? Our semantics tell us everything. If we get back to normal, we'll feel better. Why? What was great about normal? Sorrow increases, pain increases, sin increases, wickedness increases. It's chaos. And Jesus has stepped into our world and into our lives and into Moundsville. That's what you and I are. He's come to conquer Satan. He's come to still the wind and the waves. He's come to assert his agenda to save sinners and restore and renew all of creation. Every last groaning inch of it, including you and me. We need not fear a little chaos in our church if Jesus is the Lord of it. We need not find our identity in our failures. We need not find our identity in our accomplishments. We need not turn a blind eye to the world. We need not give in to our flesh. He is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He loves us. 
He loves us. He loves you. He even loves me. He came to save us. Look to Christ this morning. Look to Christ. Let the things of the earth grow strangely dim for a while so that God can put them back into focus. He is saving you. Lean into Him with me. Lean into Him. He's for us. He's on our side. He will hold us in His arms until the storm passes by. Until we wake up on the other shore. Look to Christ. We love it. Look to Christ.